Good morning to all of you who are here in the room with us, as well as those who may be joining us uh, online via live stream. However you're with us, glad that you're uh, here joining us this morning. Um, just want to extend a warm welcome to you, particularly if you are new or visiting and we haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Chris, and I have the privilege of being one of your pastors here at New Life. And for the last couple of weeks, what we've been doing is just kind of systematically working through uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? And so it's been called the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And it's quite an extensive sermon, so it covers all of chapters 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew's Gospel. And so what we're doing as a church family is we're just going to kind of park and camp here for the first quarter of the year and go through this really lengthy and incredible sermon that Jesus preached all those years ago. So far, what we've seen the last couple of weeks is Jesus begin to describe his upside-down kingdom in ways that really, I think, would have been shocking to his original audience. And if we're being honest, I think it can even, it can even be quite unsettling for us as modern-day people because what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he's taking the world's value system and he's untangling it and reorienting it in a really surprising way. And I think for us, as, just as it was for people all those years ago who heard it live in person, that can really be kind of disorienting for us, right? Because it's kind of like, dang, man, so what, what you're telling me is everything in the world that I thought was up is actually down, and everything I was ever taught is down is actually up. And Jesus is like, yes, exactly. You're starting to get the point. Now, two weeks ago, Jesus taught us what his kingdom looks like internally, right, with the Beatitudes, kind of these eight short, pithy true statements that all begin with the word blessed. So we talked about, you know, like blessed are the merciful, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And so last week he then takes that and he gives us the external manifestation of that as his disciples, as his followers, that we should be influencers in the culture around us. Or that we, sh we should be salt and light in a dark and decaying world. And I'm excited today because what Jesus is going to do at this moment in time, in this section of his Sermon on the Mount, is he's really going to teach us how to read and understand the Bible, right? Which is uh, pretty important for those of us who, who follow him. But before we do that, let me just let me set the table uh, for us by asking a question. Have you ever thrown something away that you thought you were never going to need again, only to realize at a later date that you actually needed that thing that you threw away? Has anybody else had that experience? Maybe you put together something from Ikea, and you're like, I don't know where that bolt goes. I'll throw it away, and three weeks later, right, the thing's clap. You're like, dang it, I needed that. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit of an embarrassing story that happened in our household over the holidays. So you guys probably like us. We get, uh, right around the holidays, we get uh, Christmas cards from lots of friends and family, and uh, it's delightful. We get to see all your cool pictures, and we put them up on our fridge, and uh, fold them up and put them on our bar. And then, once Christmas uh, kind of rolls around, you get past the holidays, what do you do with those Christmas cards? Some of you file them because you're weird, but most of us just throw them away, right? And my wife was, was out of town visiting family in another state, and so being the good husband that I am, I just kind of grabbed them all up, and I, and I just threw them away in the trash. Why are y'all laughing? <laughs> Some of you are like, well, I don't know where this is going. So my wife comes back a couple days later, and she goes... Hey, Chris, uh, where was that really special card that uh, one of my friends from another state sent? And I had this moment where I paused and I was thinking in my mind, uh, there's no way she could prove it, not me or one of our kids. 
And, but then I was like, man, now I feel guilty the rest of my life knowing that I, I was not honest with her. And so I, I told her, and she said, but Chris, what? That, that was a special card. Like, it, it had hand, a handwritten note in it from my friend. And, and then I made a mistake. And so young uh, married guys, let me just help you out here. I said, well, I read it. It didn't seem that special to me. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I have the scars where she choked me out uh, in the living room. But I made a tragic mistake. <laughs> I threw away something that I thought didn't have any value when it actually had a lot of value. And I say all of that to say this, what's true in our daily lives is also true in our spiritual lives. We shouldn't be so quick to discard what we think we no longer need because it's often in those very things that we find great value. So let me circle back around to the Bible, the scriptures. I think that an argument could be made that the Bible could, at least broadly speaking, could be broken down into two categories, law and gospel, right? Commandment and good news, right? Obedience and grace. But there's a misconception that I've come across uh, quite frequently uh, in the church in America today, even among surprisingly very mature Christians. And that misconception goes something like this. The God of the Old Testament was mean God. The God of the Old Testament was the I woke up on the wrong side of the bed before I've had coffee God. And somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God must have gotten saved because then in the New Testament, we get happy God. Hold, let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya God, the God of grace and mercy. And so I, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, but I do like the God of the New Testament, which by the way, if that's been your thought process, I just want you to know is totally wrong. All right? God is the same. Yesterday, today, forevermore, same God. We get both commands and grace, by the way, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And by the way, y'all, as human beings, don't we need both? Don't we need both? Don't we need rules to follow? And don't we need grace for the times when we can't follow them well? Now, parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. We, we practice law and grace every day in our household, don't we? Like, if you could be a fly on the wall for an hour in our home, in the span of one hour, you might hear things like, I love you, buddy. Hey, stop it! <laughs> don't you ever speak to your mother like that again. How are you this morning, sweetheart? Go clean your room. I love you. Get out of here. What are you doing, right? So we, we need this. We understand this as human beings, as good parents, and we have a good heavenly father, right? We need both command, the law, rule, but we also need grace. We need the gospel. We need both, and we get both in God and in the scriptures. Now, as kids, if you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, you know this to be true, don't kids at a very early age learn to obey the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law? Isn't that true? <laughs> My parents tell the story, um, and I don't know if it's true or not. You can decide whether you want to believe them or me, but they tell the story of when me and my sister were little, we'd take road trips. And I was, I was the sibling who always irritated the junk out of my other sibling, right? And so I think every family's got one of those, just troublemakers. And so I was always doing something to irritate her and make her scream in the back seat of the car. So I would, I would be like poking her leg or leaning on her or flicking her in the throat or something like that. And then she would, she would scream bloody murder, right? My dad would like swerve off the road and then start swinging behind. He couldn't see anything. Like, ah! It was just so angry. So they started a rule, and the rule was on road trips, you can't touch each other. That was the rule. 
Now, how do you think that went? For about five minutes, that was awesome, right? It was quiet in the back seat. It was peaceful. It was calm. And then all of a sudden, my sister screamed bloody murder again. And my parents say they looked back in the back. And I had my hands one centimeter from her face going, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you, right? Now, was I actually following the command? Yes, I wasn't touching her. Was I following the heart behind the command? No, absolutely not, right? We're all born little sinners, right? So I I just kind of want to, I want you to keep that picture, that story in mind as we dive into what Jesus is about to tell us right here. So if you have a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screens for you. Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to, and, and underline this in your Bible, but to fulfill them. Right, so we're going to come back to that in a minute. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a mouthful, isn't it? So let's pause just for a moment. Let's ask for God's help as we step into this teaching. Father, we come to you. And I think our confession, at least my confession would be that um, this in some ways is a a really difficult passage to digest. Not that it's difficult to understand, but it's difficult to apply to our lives because it requires us to humble ourselves. It requires us to lay down uh, our pride and our self-righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, that you would give us eyes, not just physical eyes, but spiritual eyes so that we could see your truth, that you would give us hearts that could uh, receive these ancient words that are inspired by your spirit and alive and active today, uh, not as an intellectual exercise, but as something that we can apply to our lives in a meaningful way that will change the way that we interact with the world around us. For the sake and name of your son Jesus, in whom we ask and we pray all these things. Amen. Now, before we unpack what Jesus is saying in this teaching, let me, if I could, for a couple minutes, just give you kind of a basic framework to understand Old Testament law. Because if you're anything like me, you've heard someone somewhere along the way say something like, you know what? The problem with you Christians is that you're a bunch of hypocrites, right? You've probably heard that. You guys believe the Bible, and you say you believe it's the actual Word of God, the inerrant Word of God, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and yet you guys just pick and choose what you want to follow out of the Bible, all right? And so you pick the one commandment about loving your neighbors, but then you ignore the commandment about eating shellfish or wearing uh, clothes with mixed fabrics, right? You've probably heard that argument. Now, if you don't understand a basic flow or purpose of Old Testament law, when someone says something like that to you, whether you're in a college classroom or it's your your friend at your college campus or somewhere where you work, you're just going to be stumped, right? You're not going to know what to say. You're going to be like, uh, uh, well, well, you need braces, dude, so take that. I mean, it's not going to be helpful for you or anybody else, So this is important, right? This is important. Scholars for centuries have divided uh, Old Testament law into three categories, okay? So I'm going to put it on the screens for you. 
Uh, take a snapshot of it with his phone if you need to so you can remember it. Three categories, civil, sacrificial, or ceremonial, and moral, all right? So let me just take two minutes on each one. So civil law, we got to understand Israel for a time was a nation that was literally governed by God, right? For a, a period of time. So prophets would hear from God and they would take that word from God and they would say to the people, thus says the Lord. And that's how that nation, those people were governed and that's how laws were created and all those things. Now you gotta understand the purpose behind all of that of God choosing a nation and governing it directly was so that all nations would see how incredible the God of Israel was so that they also would come to this God, love him, enjoy him, and worship him. So when Jesus came and he established a a new people, a new nation filled with people from every nation, this civil law was fulfilled in Christ. See, guys, we no longer live in a theocracy, right? We live in a democratic republic, which is why we don't abide by these Old Testament civil laws. Now, we're not being hypocrites by not following all those civil laws. We're actually doing exactly what Jesus taught us to do in the sense that he has fulfilled those laws, right? We're not a theocracy any longer. Now, here's the second category of Old Testament law, sacrificial or ceremonial laws. This is one we're more familiar with. These are things that the people of God had to do in Old Testament times to purify themselves before they would enter into God's presence or sacrifices that they would have to make to atone for their sins. Well, guess what Jesus did when he came? The New Testament tells us that Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice for all of his people. So all of those laws have been completely fulfilled by the sacrifice, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. And these things are no longer binding to those who are in Christ. All right, so this is important for you to understand. Third category of Old Testament law. It's what scholars call moral law. So think of like Ten Commandments, things like that. Laws that teach us about the nature and the character of God. Now, these laws are binding for all believers of all time, right? So three categories of Old Testament law, civil, sacrificial, ceremonial, and moral, three categories. Now, how many of those three categories are still binding for New Testament followers of Jesus? One, right? There's one. So it's important for you to, to know that. Now, the, the others haven't been abolished there's still value in those other laws because they teach us about who God is and, and how he views holiness and all of those things, right? They haven't been abolished or destroyed. Jesus just says, I've come to fulfill them. So the next time somebody on your college campus or in your neighborhood or workplace or whatever pulls the old, hey, Christians are hypocrites because they just pick and choose which commands out of the Bible they want to follow, just drop this truth bomb right on their heads in the name of Jesus Christ, all right? And I mean that. Do it lovingly. Don't be a jerk. But it's important for you to understand that. We're not being hypocrites by not following some of these laws. We're doing exactly as Jesus commanded us. Now back to verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but there that word is. I have come to fulfill them. Now, now why do you think Jesus felt the need to explain that? I would argue it's likely because some people who had been hearing Jesus teach these powerful, uh, intriguing, authoritative messages, they've been watching him heal people and perform all these miracles, they had to be thinking, man, this is so different. This is so different than anything we've ever heard in the local synagogues. This is, anything, this is so different from anything we've heard from the priests or the Pharisees or the scribes. Is this just a whole new thing? 
Like, is this a whole new movement? Is this a whole different religion? Can we now just throw out the entire Old Testament and just follow the new teachings of this rock star rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth? Now, Jesus, no doubt, hears the whispers. He can sense that this is what the people are thinking. He says, hey, listen up. I didn't come to abolish or destroy the law. I actually came to fulfill it, meaning I came to bring it to completion, to bring it to fruition. I I came to be the full embodiment of the law for you. So how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament law? We talked about a couple of ways. There's actually several ways. But I want you to look at what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He says this. In the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify, justify the Gentiles. Now, who are the Gentiles? A- unless you're an ethnic Jew, that's you. <laughs> that's me. We're all, we're all Gentiles, right? That God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, did you catch that? What Paul is doing here is he's hyperlinking back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says something pretty astounding. He goes, the gospel was preached to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, which by the way, was some 400 years before the law was ever even given. So a lot of times we think of, man, the old, in the Old Testament it was all law, and then we got New Testament, Jesus came, we get the gospel, not according to Paul. He's saying even in Genesis, centuries before the law was given, the gospel was being preached. Abraham was told that one day through your line, a descendant would come and all peoples of the earth would be blessed. Now we know from uh, you know, studying history and looking at the lineages in the scriptures that that descendant from Abraham was who? Jesus Christ. Now, go back even further in the book of Genesis. Go back to chapter 3. In the ashes of the fall in the garden, Genesis 3.15, God promises that a descendant of Eve would one day rise up and crush the head of a serpent. We have, listen guys, we have clear images of the gospel and of Jesus Christ even in the garden. More than that, the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. I mean, it's all a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. Now, listen guys, I could give you uh, example after example after example, story after story in the Old Testament this morning. For the sake of time, let me just choose one. Now, if you're like me, you grew up in the church world, uh, you went to Sunday school as a kid, you maybe went to RAs, GAs, Awana, whatever it is, you heard incredible kind of heroic stories of characters in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, right? So we all grew up on stories of Samson and Daniel and Moses But I think the most famous story, even if this is like your first time in a church building your entire life, we've all heard the story of David and Goliath. We've all, we're super familiar with it, right? So if you remember that story, this ferocious Philistine army shows up to invade uh, God's people, um, Israel. And they have this freakishly large soldier named Goliath. So scholars estimate he's probably around nine feet tall. He's so large, in fact, that the body armor that he wore weighed about 130 pounds. So just maybe imagine our student pastor, Alan, if he were on growth hormones and steroids, and if he actually worked out, that would maybe be... (laughs) He's way bigger than me. I'm sorry, Alan. It's a joke. It's a joke. He's a scary dude. That's the point. (laughs) Like, Goliath is really scary. And the scriptures tell us for 40 days, he's just mocking the Israeli army. Like he walks out to the battlefield. He's like, give me somebody to fight. And they're all petrified of this guy, right? He's he's got a reputation on the battlefield. 
So even Saul, the king, who should have been the guy to go down there and fight, and we know from Scripture he was a big dude as well. The Scriptures say that he stood about a, about a foot taller than everybody else in his country. So he was a big dude, and he was petrified. He wouldn't fight Goliath. All the Israeli special forces, commandos, these guys who are some of the best fighters in the world, they're like, nope, they're, they're just kind of trembling in the corner, sucking on their thumb, uh, you know, crying for their mom. They're like, no, we're not fighting Goliath. And then one day, a young, probably teenage boy, young shepherd boy comes to the battlefield, not to fight, but actually to bring lunch to his older brothers who are soldiers, and he sees what's going on, and he is appalled. He is ticked. I'm not even going to tell you exactly what he said because some of you would be offended. But he's like, who is this jerk who would defy the armies of the Lord? And everybody's like, David, <laughs> you see how big he is? He's like, man, it's not about my size. It's about the size of my God. And he gathers up five little smooth stones. He takes a slingshot, which he would have been intimately familiar with as a shepherd. Right? He would have been protecting his, his herd from lions and bears and wolves and all kinds of things. And he goes down there. He challenges Goliath face to face. And you know the rest of the story, right? He unleashes that bad boy, hits him smack in the middle of the face. He falls face down and probably in one of the most gospel gangster moves ever. He walks over and grabs his own sword and separates him from his head. It's like, what's up now? Who's God is real now, right? This is an incredible picture. We all know this story. It's incredible. But here's, here's the problem. Oftentimes, growing up in the church world, the application from this story is be like David, y'all. Be like David. You can be like David. You know, just kind of reach within your own inner strength and you too can conquer your Goliath in life. But y'all, I don't think that's the intended picture here. I would argue that in this story, you're not David. And I'm not David. We are the Israelites cowering in the corner with wet pants because we had no way of defeating the Goliath of sin, death, and hell in our own lives until a Savior showed up on our behalf and did what we could never do ourselves. Y'all, David is Jesus. David is Jesus. Not you. Not me. And we could just go through the whole thing. Moses, Abraham, Samson. We could go through the whole thing. I can show you these Christological pictures that are just right there, easy to see once you see them. The whole Old Testament, by the way, unfolds in this way. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Samson. Jesus is the better Noah. Now, Jesus not only came to fulfill the sacrificial laws and the ceremonial laws, what he's saying here, the point is, the whole point of the whole thing is Jesus it's all pointing to him it was always pointing to him and then Jesus is going to kind of drive home the importance of this in verse 18 look at this with me he says this for truly I say to you so now he's making it more personal right you can kind of picture him leaning in towards his disciples for truly I'm saying to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a single dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, for you Bible scholars, you know this, but for the rest of you, an iota, an iota was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a, dot, and, a, and a dot was the smallest accent in the Hebrew language. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's speaking here to his disciples then and to his disciples, us today, about the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the scriptures. And listen, y'all, I'm just telling you, in a day and age where it's sort of in vogue in a lot of church circles today to kind of downplay the importance of the scriptures or especially downplay the importance of the Old Testament scriptures as being from God, God's word to us. I think we ought to look to how Jesus views scriptures to affect how we view the scriptures. 
And what, and what he's saying here is that the scriptures are completely and fully trustworthy and truthful. They are from God, Jesus says, and they are fulfilled in me. And he's saying not a single iota or dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So truth number one, on the screen, sorry for your note, take it, write this down. The scriptures are both trustworthy and truthful. The scriptures are both trustworthy and truthful. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive today on the canonization process and why you should trust that all 66 books in your Bible are God-breathed and Holy Spirit-inspired, but great scholars, way smarter than I'll ever be, have done a great job of addressing pretty much every concern I've heard out there or objection that's been raised. All right, I'll just give you a couple resources. You write these down if you want to do for the research. Tim Keller has a book called The Reason for God. He's got an entire section in there on the reliability of the scriptures. He does a fantastic job. Mark Clark has a book called The Problem of God. Also has a chapter devoted just to this. Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, which our staff went, to, went through together last year. A beautiful exposition of why the Bible is trustworthy, why you can trust that it's actually God's word to us. And many other academic um, books as well, works that are out there for you. But I want you to just had a pastor friend trying to, to see uh, does studying the Bible, the scriptures, does that have a real effect on people's lives? Beyond just like intellectual knowledge, do, does it actually have an effect on how they live their lives, how they interact with their neighbors and their roommates and their spouses, kids, grandkids, whatever? What they found in this research was people that read the Bible two times a week or less, there's no change in their lives at all from an unbeliever who's never even read the Bible. Okay, so two times or less, no change. You get to three times per week, and there's a slight uptick in, the, in it actually beginning to affect the way that people live out their lives. But what was stunning in this study is that it seems that the magic happens at four times per week. Four times per week. And what the study shows is that once you hit reading the scriptures four times per week, the effect on people's lives is absolutely Astonishing. So I just want to read you some of these stats. Reading the Bible four times per week, the feelings of loneliness drop by 30%. Anger issues drop by 32%. Bitterness in relationships drop 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant drops 60%. Viewing porn drops 61%. And watch this, y'all. Sharing your faith jumps 200%. And discipling others jumps 230%. Let's read the Bible, y'all. This is what Jesus is saying. This is God's word. It's good for us. It nourishes our souls and changes the way that we live and interact with the world around us. Jesus' point is crystal clear here. The scriptures are trustworthy and they are truthful and they are good for us. We need a steady diet of the scriptures. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're just not in the habit of it, let me just encourage, make it a habit. Put it in your alarm, you know, put, schedule it. Make the alarm beat four times a week, 15 minutes early. Just get up and start reading the gospel of John or Matthew. Just make that a habit, a rhythm of your life that you're just in the word. You're just saturating your mind and your heart with the words of the Lord in the scriptures. It's important. And then Jesus continues in verse 19. And he says, because of all of that, because of what I've just said to you about the Old Testament law and the prophets, the scriptures, he says, therefore, because of all of that, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't even know what that means, but I think it's not good, all right? I don't know what that means. I don't want to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But, he goes, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I want option two, not option one. And Jesus is saying here, I think what he's saying here is there will be, listen y'all, there will be a significant consequence for anyone who minimizes the law and the scriptures. Now there was a famous megachurch pastor uh, just a few hours from here, I will not mention his name if you want to know, come ask me after the service, who very famously said that the church and Christians should unhitch from the Old Testament. Just leave it behind. Too many problems there, God seems kind of angry there, so let's just Let's just abort the Old Testament and just stick with the New Testament. Now, listen, church, I'm just telling you, a place of pastoral love, if I have to choose between the words of a man and the words of Jesus, I'm going with Jesus 100 out of 100 times. All right? In fact, you may or may not know this, but every single year at New Life, we intentionally plan a steady diet in our Sunday morning sermon series of both Old Testament and New Testament teachings. Now, why is that? In a day and age when a lot of churches have abandoned the Old Testament entirely, except they might occasionally dip into like an occasional psalm or proverb or something like that, but largely have abandoned the Old Testament, why would we have a steady, consistent diet of both Old Testament and New Testament teachings? It's because we, like Jesus, we believe in the whole counsel of God's word. We believe his words here, that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so we look for the imprints of Jesus from from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And we point to him in our sermons and the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and everything that we do here, right? That's why our mission statement at New Life is to help people find and follow Jesus. It's all about him. That's what he's saying here. The law and the prophets, all of the scriptures point, point to me. There's value here. Feast on this. Now look what he says in verse 20. For I tell you, and this is where it gets real, and this is where it becomes problematic, at least for me. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now understand this. Jesus is saying, this is the standard. (laughs) This is the test to get in unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not getting in. I read that and I'm like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Like, you, do you realize how insane this statement must have seemed to his original audience? Like, like we heard like the term scribes and Pharisees, so that doesn't mean a whole lot to us today. But you gotta understand, in those days, the scribes and the Pharisees had external religious obedience on lockdown. They were, they were the all-stars of religious performance in their day. Now, understand this. These guys would, no joke, they literally would memorize the entire Old Testament and would be able to recite it by heart. And they zealously, zealously followed and tried to obey all 613 commands in the Old Testament. In fact, they were, they were so zealous that they would actually make up laws about the laws to obey. It's like 613 is not enough. I need 1,000. This is, this is who they were, right? These guys were the Navy SEALs of the religion world. 
So you got listen, you got to understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, basically, maybe to modernize it a little bit, you have to play basketball better than Michael Jordan to get in. You have to play golf better than Tiger Woods at his peak to get in. You have to be better on the field of combat than the best Navy SEALs who have ever walked the face of the planet. You have to have thicker hair than Mike Watkins to get in. Like, impossible, Lord. Have you seen that mane? It's so thick and luscious. I don't know how I could do that. All of these things seem totally impossible. And by the way, you should just know this. This is a pass or fail test. This is not like when you took the SAT in high school and you're like, man, I got a 1,200 out of 1,600. Like, that's pretty good. Nope, it's pass or fail. It's 100% or an F. So I don't know about you. I, like, I read this, and for me, where my mind goes, where my heart goes is, I'm in trouble. Like, I'm in deep trouble. Like, Jesus, I know, I know myself. I know my thoughts. I know my hearts. I know my, I know my heart. I know my actions. How on earth am I going to surpass this level of righteousness to get into your kingdom? Now, we're going to circle back around to that, but let me just pause here for a moment and, and say one thing, because there's always, when I preach something like this, there's always the person out there that's either thinking or they come up to me after the service and they say something like this, Chris, I'm good. You don't know me, but I'm a good person. Like, God's going to let me in. Like, Chris, look, I don't like to brag, but I, I help little old ladies cross the street when nobody's looking, and I recycle and drink out of paper straws, and I hardly ever kick the neighbor's dog when it poops in my yard. Like, rarely do I kick it. Like, I'm, I'm good. I'm in. And I always want to say, are you? Like, really, do you, you think you're good? Let, shall we just take a, a little meander, a little stroll through the Ten Commandments, shall we? And I'll just ask them questions. I'll just start with the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, but I mean, like, nothing, nothing big. Okay, so you, you lied. Um, have you ever uh, taken anything that wasn't yours? Because God calls that stealing, you know? Well, yeah, but nothing big, you know, not as much as most people. Did you ever disobey your parents when you were a kid? I mean, yeah, but I mean, I was a good kid. Okay. Have you ever had a lustful thought towards someone that's not your spouse? Have you ever coveted someone else's house, car, spouse, vacation, clothes, career, or life? Like, man, I'm only halfway through the Ten Commandments, and you're already telling me you're a lying, cheating, disobedient, lustful thief with a heart full of greed. But you're good. You're in, right? Is, it, is, it, is that the story I'm hearing? You're, you're good? You're, you're in? Like, I don't, even, I don't even need to get to the other 603 commandments in the Old Testament because you couldn't even get halfway through the Ten Commandments. Like, homie, you're guilty. You failed the test. And so do I, a million times over, every single day of my life. So how do we surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Here's how. When we do the right thing, listen, when we do the right thing out of the right heart. See, Jesus cares about your motives. It's been said that doing the right thing for the wrong reason is the greatest act of treason. Right? Because it's just a lie that's glossed over with something that only looks like it, only appears as if it's the truth. So imagine if I were to go uh, to Cheryl, my wife, one day and say, hey, babe, I just want to let you know I'm going to start dating a few, other women's, uh, a few other women, but don't worry. Don't worry because I'm going to come home to you every single night. And I technically, technically haven't broken our marriage vows. So just want you to let you know, out of all my girls, you're number one, boo. Love you. Now let me ask you something. In that moment, 
Is she going to go, well, I mean, technically he said he hasn't broken our marriage vows, so we're all good. Or is she going to feel betrayed? She's going to feel betrayed. Why? Because motive matters. And I want you to understand something. Jesus is not after your cold obedience. He's after your heart, friend. But the problem with this is none of us are born with a heart like this. None of us are. None of us born with a heart that just delights in obeying Jesus and following his commands. So I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, man, we're kind of up the creek without a paddle. And that's exactly where we would be and that's exactly where we would stay into eternity if that's where the story ended. But praise God, that's not where the story ends. Look at what Paul says later on in Galatians 3 on the screen where Paul writes this. And this is beautiful. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, from the inability to fulfill the law ourselves. He redeemed us from that curse. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, what we just talked about in Genesis chapter 12, might come to the Gentiles. That's all of us. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And this is really good news. Because what Paul is saying is, listen guys, the law serves as a mirror. It shows us just how far we fall short so that we see our need for a savior and run to Jesus. Now here's the bottom line, and this is truth number two on the screens for you. Checklist religion leads to death, but heart level delight in Jesus leads to life. Now friend, do you see the difference there? He's not after just simply external obedience with a cold heart. He's after a heart that beats for him, delights in following his ways and knowing him. He's not after the external obedience of a Tiger Woods level Pharisee. He's after a heart that sees following him as delight rather than drudgery. Listen, y'all, here's what legalism is. And a lot of you, like me, came from legalistic church backgrounds. Legalism, Legalism is just right behavior with wrong motive. That's all legalism is it's right behavior with wrong motive. And what I think Jesus is pointing us to, away from that and to, is kingdom life, which is right behavior, which flows from a heart that's aligned with Jesus. Those are two totally different things. And see, the problem, I think, with God's people in the Old Testament is they thought that they could obey God's law perfectly when they never could. But I think for most of us as modern-day followers of Jesus, our problem is that we think we don't have to obey even though we can because we have the Spirit of God. And see, the whole point is you, you will never have a righteousness. You will never have a righteousness that exceeds those of the scribes and the Pharisees. Your, listen, friend, your test score will never, ever be high enough to get you in. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. You get something even better, believer. Jesus has given you his righteousness. See, where you have failed to keep the law, he kept it perfectly. Where you have broken the Ten Commandments over and over and over again, just like I have, he followed them flawlessly, without error. Where you have lied, stolen, cheated, lusted, given into greed again and again, he walked in holiness. Listen, for you. 
It wasn't for him, right? He was the perfect, spotless Savior in heaven. He did all of that for you. Now listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 5. He says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, right, the fall in the garden, the many were made sinners. So scholars talk about our our sin nature, our original sin, that because our first parent sinned, we've now all been born with this propensity also to sin just like just like they did. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus Christ, the many will be made what? Righteous. Now whose righteousness is that? Is that yours or is that his applied to you? That's his righteousness. And that's the whole point. You can't do it, so he did it for you. So one thing I say here often is we all share a common problem, right? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian, an atheist, a Buddhist, a Muslim. We all share a common problem, and that common problem is sin. It's just a a biblical word that means separation uh, from from God because of our rebellion, sin. We all share a common problem. That's the bad news. The good news is this. We all share a common solution, and that common solution is Jesus. So I just want to say, man, if you're here, if you're watching online, and you are currently outside of this whole Jesus thing looking in, I want you to understand a couple things. First of all, you're welcome here. I'm glad that you're here. The second thing I need you to understand this morning is that Jesus loved you so much that he left nothing to chance. He left nothing to chance. He did everything required for you to be with him forever. He fulfilled all of it. It wasn't like, hey, let me do 90% of it, and then I'm going to tag team you in, and you just give me 10%, and then you can get in. No, no, no. He took no chances. He accomplished all of it, fulfilled all of it, all of the law, all of the righteousness, so that you could stand before the Father one day on that last day clothed in his righteousness instead of your filthy rags. I heard a pastor one time say this, and I, I can't improve on it, so I'm just going to steal it, and this is be our, our last point this morning. I love this. I think this encapsulates the whole message. I couldn't, so he did, so now we can. I couldn't, so he did, so now we can. I couldn't achieve a better righteousness. So Jesus achieved it for me, so that now we can obey because we have his spirit within us, Not so that we don't obey so that God will save us, but because he has already saved us and given us his spirit. Now see, I I would just guess that some of you in the room watching online, you are still living either enslaved to the law. So if that's you, your thought process kind of looks like this. I have to obey. I have to obey. I've got to be good today. I've got to get this sin out of my life. I've got to obey. I have to perform because if I don't perform well enough, God won't love me and he won't accept me and he won't protect me and he won't bless me and he might not even save me. And if that's your thought process, I want to let you know you are enslaved to the law. That's one end of the spectrum. On the far end of the other end of the spectrum, some of you are here and you're doing exactly what Jesus is teaching against. You've relaxed the law and you see no value in obeying Jesus or following his ways. And I just want you to understand in either case, in either extreme, you are doomed to a life of misery either as a slave or as someone who has missed the entire point of your life. I couldn't, so he did, so now we can and that's the gospel. That's the good news. And I just want to say to you guys, listen, the scriptures point to Jesus. The law points to Jesus. The prophets point to Jesus. The New Testament points to Jesus. All of creation points to Jesus, and you were made for him. 
And until you find your home in him and you stop trying to earn your own righteousness and learn to rest in his righteousness and learn to delight in his ways, you will strive for happiness and fulfillment in your life in vain. Listen, church family, he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Place your hope in him because he will never fail you. Let's pray and then we'll worship. God, we come to you. And we are grateful as your sons and your daughters that you did not leave us as orphans to try to figure out what our purpose was in life or how to please you or how to walk in your ways. Like you've, you've given us your word. You've given us your, your scripture as guardrails in our life so that we would know exactly what our purpose is and how to please you and how to find relationship in you and how to find hope and freedom and forgiveness in you. And not only that, you've, you, you've given us your spirit to indwell us and to lead us through life as your followers, as your sons and your daughters. God, we can't thank you enough for Jesus, for sending him into this busted up world. for living a perfect, sinless life, for obeying the law perfectly, flawlessly, and living a sinless life, the one that we should have lived but didn't have the capacity to live because we're all sinners, we're all broken. And he came and he lived that perfect life for us. And not only that, he died a sinner's death to atone for our rebellion against a perfect and holy God and he didn't stay in that grave three days later he walked out of that grave offering us eternal life not just in heaven one day but right now on earth as we abide in him and enjoy him and are led by his spirit God we can't thank you enough for saving us for redeeming us God would you help us to, to walk in your way so that we might walk in life God and I pray if there's there's even a single person here under the sound of my voice or watching online and maybe they're, they're not in your family yet, God, that today would be the day that they lay down their weapons, that they lay down their pride and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I realize now it's a pass or fail test and I fail. And I can't follow the law perfectly. My righteousness will never exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. I can't. But I see now that I don't have to because Jesus has done it on my behalf. And I want to claim his righteousness on my behalf. And I want him to send his spirit to live in me and to guide me so that I could know him intimately and follow him and walk in his ways. And again, God, for those of us who know you, God, would you help us wake up every single day and realize that obeying you and walking in your ways is delight, not drudgery, because you're a good God. This is relationship. God, help us to see you for who you are, all your glory and all your goodness. And help us to walk in your ways in 2024. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Church, let's stand and let's sing.